Okay, John chapter 1. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now you may remember, if you were in the second worship service last Sunday, that last Sunday we studied this text also, but we actually didn't. We studied John chapter 20, verse 31. And so I got this far into my sermon and stopped. That's the first page. And here is what I was saying last week, the whole sermon, which is that our sermon text is taken from one of the four biographies of Jesus that are extant, this one written by the Apostle John, who bats cleanup for the four Gospels. John's the cleanup. John... Uh, adds things that very obviously are not a part of the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John tends to be more mystical, and I've always thought, because he tends to be more mystical and spiritual and less concrete, I've always thought, now Luke, Luke is, Luke is the physician, and so Luke has more information about women and children than any of the other Gospels. You, you need to get to know the Gospels. I always thought, since John was mystical and spiritual, John was the softest. And so... A couple years ago, reading through John, I thought about that concept, and I learned, no, John's the hardest. And it's interesting, because I think it was the combination of the fact that, that this is the most spiritual of the four, and that John is the lover among the disciples, and the beloved. He's the one that is love, you know? I thought, it must be the softest, right? Because that's what Americans think about love. Love, love, love. All you need is love, 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 love. And then John Lennon is dead, And all he needed was love. The thing is, the world is not love. The world talks a lot about love, knows nothing of love. And so we have this idea that love keeps people from shooting each other. And if we all just love each other, everybody will get along. But nobody will get along. Number one, because what we call love is really sentimentality. It's really the Hallmark greeting card syndrome, okay? It's, it's, it has no backbone, it has no bones, it, it's only flesh and corpulent flesh at that, all right? 
And so John is truly the apostle of love. And the gospel of John is the gospel of love. And so what it does is it's very intense because it delineates between true love and false love. And it shows that God is true love. And only insofar as God works in us are we able to love. And any of you that are married know this is true. The second you said your vows, you began to violate them in your marriage. You didn't have to wait till the wedding night. (laughs) Yeah, some of you are honest. You're smiling at each other. And it's amazing. I am absolutely amazed that I love my wife. I've been like in a second honeymoon the last three weeks where I just find her delightful, absolutely delightful. And I'm not, actually, I said it wrong. It's not, I'm not amazed that I love her. <laughs> I'm amazed that she, I think, still loves me, right? And so when we look at love between a man and a woman, it is so contradictory to everything of this world. And you want to know what the world is, watch television, all right? You know, what about Bob, anybody? You know? Love between a man and a woman is an amazing thing. Proverbs says, the way of a man with a maid. Love between a mother and her children is amazing when you consider what those children force her to do for years. It's unbelievable that a mother loves. There are many manifestations of the love of God in this world, but it's, if, it's certainly not something that lacks bones, structure, limits, you know, Love in a marriage, when it doesn't have limits and structure and commitments, is not love at all. It's lust, right? And that's the reason we have the problems we have with marriages today. So when John is the apostle of love, don't have the idea that he's sentimental he's a Hallmark greeting card. He is the most intense and the most um, boundaried, you know, and laws, and, and he's the most loving And you've got to clear out all the cobwebs of what love is today with John Lennon having formed it in our culture, right? So here's John. He's writing a bio of Jesus. He is the disciple of all the disciples that was closest to Jesus. All right? And here's how he begins. We just read it. This is how he begins his gospel. And he says in John 20, 31, that he has two purposes in writing his bio. Number one, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Christ is a technical term among the Jews, meaning the anointed one. All right? Now, everybody calls Barack Obama the anointed one. And what they're doing is trading on this word Christ that refers to Jesus. And and what people are saying is, people think he's Jesus when they say the anointed one. People think he's like the Messiah. All right? I'm making no political commentary. I'm just saying that's what people mean when they say the anointed one. The Christ is part of why John wrote that you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And then it says, and that believing, present participle, that you believe, and then believing, what? That you may have life in his name. So these words in Scripture are given so that, number one, you believe that this historical figure, Jesus Christ, is the anointed one of God. Nobody else, only him. Solely Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God. Not Muhammad. Okay? Not Calvin. Okay? Not Mother Teresa. Not Pope Benedict. Only Jesus. 
and that if you believe he's the anointed one, you will then have life. These things are written so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one, God's own Son, and that believing you will have life through his name. That's why John writes this. Now, these first few verses of the Gospel of John have been said by godly students of Scripture that they're unequaled in their presentation of Jesus Christ. You'd have to go to Colossians 1 to some other text to come to anything close to the... um, uh, stratosphere of truth presented, you know, the, by a fire hydrant. That's what this is. A fire hydrant, the top is off it, and it's just absolutely pounding out water. That's what these first few verses are. You change any of the word, any of the tenses of the words, and you do irreparable damage to the doctrine of the nature of Jesus Christ and who he is. So we've read it. And I want to focus on a particular word in this text, which is important for us to understand. Now, if you've ever used a dictionary, you know some words have a very small, limited meaning, and the space taken up in the dictionary for that word is is tiny. It's very, very small. Other words have many, many different meanings and variations, and they take up sometimes columns. When we read here in the text, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, We must understand at the outset that this word translated word here, it's not a sentence definition if it were in a dictionary. It's not a column definition. It's, It's like page after page after page. The definition of this word in the Greek would take many, many pages in a lexicon or dictionary. It's, if you will, pregnant with meaning. And so to understand what John is saying in these verses, we have to spend a couple of minutes examining Two traditions behind the word, which would have been at the front of the minds of those who lived at that time when they first heard John saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. First, we'll look at the Greek background, then at the Jewish or Hebrew background of the word. First, then the Greek background to this word, word. Now, as soon as I say it, you know we're on a collision course, because I can't go through the whole sermon saying this word, word because you'll think I'm stuttering. And so if you'll give me permission, I want to use the Greek here. And the Greek, (laughs) sometimes you'll hear me say logos and sometimes logos. And I'm just going to tell you either way is proper. Josh is going to have a fit. But there's all these debates over how to pronounce it. When I was in classical Greek at UW-Madison, I learned one way to do it. And then at seminary, they teach you another way. So if I say logos or logos, just be patient with me. I don't know which to say. All right? Um, So I'll use the word logos for the word word as it's translated into English. Now, how did the Greeks understand this word logos? Well, at the heart of the Greek understanding was a philosophical principle which had its origin with a man named Heraclitus who taught 600 years before Jesus Christ. Heraclitus was a man of great learning who observed nature and human beings. And it was his observation that everything in the world is in a constant state of change. 
To sum up this state of change, he left for the record two quotes which have come down to us today 2,600 years after his death. And if you look in dictionaries of quotations today, for instance, the Oxford Dictionary of Quotations, you still find these two Heraclitus quotes. Number one, everything flows and nothing stays. And number two, you can't step into the same river twice. Now, you probably heard the second one, but not the first, right? But you know them both because they're true. Heraclitus pointed out that all things are in flux, in a constant state of change. So given this constant state of change, what is there to hold on to? What is there that remains constant and keeps the universe from self-destruction? Now, why would I say self-destruction? Well, because when I was a young man... I came home from church one day, which very sweetly only involved me walking across our backyard. And I walked into the kitchen, and there was my wife surrounded by a constant state of change. I don't remember who, but somebody was pulling on her skirt, yelling at her. She was trying to fix dinner. Somebody else was fighting with somebody else. I don't remember, but everything about that kitchen was bedlam. Everything was in a complete and utter state of change. And so, being a dad, I did what dads do, which is I told number one child to stop pulling on her skirt and bug off. Go into another room. Your mother's trying to get work done. Told another child, stop fighting with the third child, whoever it was. What did I do? I brought into the kitchen something constant and removed the flux. All right? And so you understand that if the universe gave in to the state of change, everything would be mayhem. Think traffic lights. Think all the laws that we live under. Think of your wife if you like changed wives, and that was the flux. How would she get along with that? All right? In other words, order is from God, and If you look at the world, the world tends to fly apart. And so he saw this and he said, what is it that holds the world together? What prevents the universe from breaking down into absolute chaos? And his solution to this problem was to propose that in the universe there's a certain principle of order that controls the endless change and brings order to it. And that universal principle of order he called reason or logos, logos, the Greek word here translated word that is what this ancient greek philosopher said brings order to our lives and to nature and so he proposed a concept of order called logos and this same greek word logos is the word john uses here to introduce jesus christ to the readers of his gospel Heraclitus believed that this same ordering principle wasn't only behind nature, but also it was behind and in the lives and thoughts of men and women. Everything we are, everything in the world that surrounds us, according to Heraclitus, is in perfect harmony in the midst of its ceaseless change because of the logos. That word of order. Now, you might be asking what this has to do with the first chapter of the Gospel of John since Heraclitus had been dead almost 700 years by the time John wrote his Gospel. 
Well, much as certain academic theories have infiltrated the common speech and thoughts of Americans today, regardless of how much schooling individuals have completed, so this thought of Heraclitus had worked its way into the fabric of society. Think, for instance, of Freud's theories of personality and other psychological principles. It's so much a part of our society that adolescents, having never studied Freud or psychology, know enough to blame their fathers for their sins. It just comes natural. Or think of Darwin's theory of the origin of species. People who have never studied biology or any evolutionary anything, this concept has infiltrated people's worldviews so that it's common for people to believe that every day, in every way, the world is getting better and better. Or another way of saying it is that, you know, a man or a woman can, can, can look at somebody and say, complimentary, they're so evolved. Or if they're not that precious, they might say, progressive. In other words, everything that's happened up until this time was waiting for us to come along. And everything after us will be beneficiaries of our greatness, right? You never, ever, ever in Western world today, you never, ever, ever want to what? Turn back the clock. (laughs) Because if you want to turn back the clock, you're a Neanderthal. So this whole prejudice that what's behind us was bad and what's in front of us is good is so deeply woven into our thought life that we never have to study evolution. We're just convinced of it. And and it really makes me sick. (laughs) Because you read the preaching of preachers in the past and you know preaching hasn't gotten better. I mean, it's awful. Preaching today is awful. And if you want to know whether this is true, just read any of Jonathan Edwards' sermons or Whitfield's or anybody's from the past. Even read the New Testament and you'll see how bad preaching is today. Read the Gospel, I mean the Book of Acts recording sermons. So we have Freud's series of personality, we have evolution, and reflecting this whole tradition, today we have a Christmas gift that some of you will give to your children or grandchildren. Legos! All right. The word Lego underlies the word Logos and denotes the activity of collecting and of carefully selecting and cataloging in succession and arranging together in an orderly sequence. Isn't that something? So, as we said, this word Logos was pregnant with meaning. As one biblical scholar points out, the Greeks knew all about the Logos. Therefore, it was with a stroke of divine genius that John seized upon this word, one that was as meaningful to the Greeks as it was to the Jewish people. And he said by means of it, listen, you Greeks, the very thing that has most occupied your philosophical thought and about which you have all been writing for centuries, the Logos of God, this word, this controlling power of the universe and of man's mind, this has come to earth as a man and we have seen him. Now I want to stop and have a little detour All right, for a second. Did you notice what I read at the beginning of that quote? 
I, wrote, I read this, and this is a man that many of us honor. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but this is a wonderful man. He's now gone to be with the Lord who writes this. But listen to what he writes. The Greeks knew all about the Logos. Therefore, it was with a stroke of divine genius that John seized upon this word. What? 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 What's that? This is the danger of the academy. This is the danger of those who live in their minds and to write and use their mouths and their pens and their computer processors for, for a living. When you begin to write about Scripture and you begin to take it apart like a doctor does a cadaver, you know, as he's in medical school, you begin to feel superior to it. You begin to overemphasize the human author and to forget that who is the author of Scripture? The author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit... Holy men of old wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Or all Scripture, it says, is God-breathed. These are quotes from Scripture. And so you realize that for anybody to say, therefore it was with a stroke of divine genius that John seized upon the word. This is the problem with biblical scholarship today. This is it. This is the problem. I mean, imagine me saying, (laughs) think about this. It was with a stroke of divine genius that, that Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. I mean, what brilliance. I can't believe Moses wrote it. And of course, then they would say, well, actually, Moses didn't write it. And what we do is we operate on this book as if it's bought off Amazon.com. <laughs> you know, as if Harper and Rowe had an editor. You know, as if Tyndale House, in a stroke of divine genius, decided to sell it to the masses. Again, this book is the Word of God. Last night I was reading a biography of uh, Augustine. And in the biography, the biographer was talking about how wonderful it was that Augustine finally brought philosophy into the church. Because Ambrose was just stuck on Scripture and all he wanted to do was get people to read Scripture and think about Scripture and love Scripture. But then Augustine came along and Augustine brought the Greek philosophers into the church and finally men like me that talk loudly in restaurants and use big words who have the terminal degree found a place we could live in the church. Now, he didn't say that final thing, but he did say it. It just wasn't, that wasn't said. Listen, if you're an academic, it is your privilege to be more humble than a pig farmer. Okay? You should glory in your humiliation. There is no truth that is not in this book that is not humbling to you. This book is the supreme statement of God. Nature is not. The Greek philosophers are not. This book is God's wisdom. And it's a wisdom that Plato never conceived of. So if you're stuck looking at slides of secretions of past generations, like Plato, that's your humiliation. And when you come to this book, this book is the Word of God. And it's only in this book 
that you will find infallible truth. Infallible. Completely trustworthy. So I won't go on with that, but I cannot emphasize that enough. Do not ever write the statement, John had like this illumination of divine genius. No. Every word John wrote, every single one, is God-breathed. None of it came from his own will. Yes, it did come to him in such a way that it had his character. It had his personality. He wasn't simply this person at a seance, you know, writing without knowing what he was writing. His personality, everything he was, all his background, the Holy Spirit used. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that, well, John had a moment of divine genius. He didn't. John was writing scripture, and scripture is divine genius because the Holy Spirit moves men, all right? By the way, it's Jim Boyce. (laughs) Go figure. Okay. So, this is what the Greeks thought of. This concept of the Logos working its way into Greek society, common element of their thought. Plato, we're told, once turned to that little group of philosophers and students gathered around him during the Greek Golden Age in Athens and said to his philosophers... Quote, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Unquote. And now John is saying, yep, Plato and the logos has come, and now God is revealed to us perfectly in Jesus Christ. This is Jim Boyce. So then this is the Greek understanding that would have come to mind for John's contemporaries when they read, in the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Now, what meaning did the Jews bring to this word? Well, at the heart of the significance of this title, the word for the Jews was the tradition from the Old Testament of the creating and the revealing word of God. And we can see this meaning and significance in a number of Old Testament passages. Foundational to all these passages is the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, where we read the very first verse of Scripture as follows. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right away, we should notice something here. Do you recognize this wording? Does it sound at all familiar to you? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the word. When John began his gospel with the same words that the Jewish scriptures, Old Testament, began with, it would have rung an internal bell and set off an internal alarm in the minds of all his Jewish listeners. It would be like one of us beginning a book or letter with the words, when in the course of human events, or we hold these truths to be self-evident, or it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Some of you. How many of you know where that comes from? Where? Huh? Ask Barbara or Brandon. Now, John, when he began his gospel with the words in the beginning, immediately shot his readers back to that well-known account of God's creation of the universe in Genesis chapter 1. And words back then had a different meaning or significance. Let me continue. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Bible 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And the earth thought about it a while, made a decision whether or not to submit to God. You know, like the dad who doesn't discipline his children, and he says, let there be silence, and there's mayhem. No, God said what? God said, let there be light, and there was light. Okay? Notice the spoken word of God creates the world and all that's in it. And this is a critical point for us to make about the Jewish significance of logos or word. It was the Jewish understanding that words are not just the means of expressing thoughts and communicating feelings and desires, but the word logos was actually in and of itself a creative and productive or destructive force. To a Jew, a word doesn't simply communicate things. A word does things. Now, that's almost impossible for us to understand today because none of us are men or women of our word. All of us think that saying something doesn't make it a commitment. You have to strike your hand in pledge, or you have to have a contract. Or you have to say, you know, some formula along with your word that binds you. And so we have an infinite number of words. I mean, we have words to the Googleplex. Mind-boggling number of words, because words really don't mean much to us. The Greek language, much like English, the Greek language had 200,000 words. Hebrew, 20,000. Must tell you something about the difference between the cultures, right? And so we see this principle of the authority and power of words and the account of God creating the universe. Not through action, but through words. Words didn't just say things, they did things. Then God said, let there be an expanse. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. And so on. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. Then God said, let us make man in our own image. Later in Scripture, we're told again that it was God's word that created the universe. In Psalm 33, 6, we read, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Psalm 33, 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And in many other places we see that words are very powerful things to the Jews. It is by the word of God that salvation and new life are brought to us. Psalm 107, 20, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Ezekiel 37, 4, again he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. Beautiful picture of what's happened to us when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. 
the dry bones by the word of God were brought to life. Another indication of the power of words in God's plan as it's laid out for us in the Old Testament is that it's by or through God's word that his purposes are accomplished. Isaiah 55.10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and breath to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the, mat- in the matter for which I sent it out. In fact, the entire job of the prophets was to speak God's word. Jeremiah said, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... It's one of the tragedies today about the pulpits. The reason that we, we don't preach well is that we don't think that we're delegated the responsibility and and, and accountable for presenting the word of God as it is to the people. Instead, we're always trying to mediate the tension between God and his holiness and the the sewage treatment plant that is our lives. And we think, well, the people can't see God's holiness. I'll put a veil on his word. And so what happens is what used to happen all the time with coins. Coins would circulate, and as they circulated, people would trim the coin of the realm. They'd take off just a little bit of the metal here and a little bit of the metal here because coins were made of precious metals. And pretty soon the coins would shrink. And they didn't, that was, you know, back when, you know, it mattered. But it doesn't matter with coins anymore. You know, the gold standard's gone. Nothing matters today except if you run that stoplight or litter or don't fasten your safety belt. But for the preacher to take God's truth and trim it and not give it to you, well, he is a wonderful preacher. He just knows precisely how to deal with postmodern man and woman. And he just trims a little here, and he trims a little there, and he trims a little here. And in the Old Testament, what did the prophets do? The prophets said, the word of the Lord came to me, and this is what God said. And if they ever changed it, they were under the sentence of death. But there's no consequences today. You trim God's word, you make it palatable to the people, the people pay you well. The more you trim, the better you get paid. And if you're a master trimmer, my goodness, there's no... I mean, you can earn $250,000 a year. And everybody will think you're a paragon of biblical preaching. And what you really are is a master of trimming. And so words don't mean anything to us today. The Word of God doesn't mean anything to us today. The preacher's the man we pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. The preacher's the guy that is very good at packaging the Holy Spirit for you. (laughs) He packages it in a way that you leave feeling good about yourself. All right, all right, all right, all right. I'm back. And so what we read in the Old Testament is this word is kept absolutely perfectly it is presented exactly as god said it 
God promises that when his word is presented exactly the way he spoke it to the prophets, that it will never return to him void. It will always accomplish what he set out for it to do, which is principally for the pastor to get more pay. No. The purpose of the word is for those of you who cry out saying, my heart is deceitful above all things and I'm desperately wicked and I'm privileged to say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life is the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness can't comprehend it. And you go, yes, I knew there was a balm in Gilead. I knew there was a place for healing. I knew somebody knew what my heart is like. I know nobody else's heart is like that. But I know my heart, and now there's a balm in Gilead. There is a man sent from God whose name was John. And he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness to that light. There is a man sent from God whose name is Timothy. And he is not that light, but he's sent to bear witness to that light. And this is the Christmas story. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was not Gaia. In the beginning was not some life force that like had to out. In the beginning was not these little crustaceans, these little biology. In the beginning was not evolution. In the beginning was not the Big Bang. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. You are not making yourself. He made you. Your mom and dad didn't make you. He used them to give you life and breath. And in the beginning, in other words, back before history, back way before the Big Bang, was the Word. And the Word was with God. The Word was God. This is Jesus Christ. Many years ago, I read an article in the Sunday magazine of the New York Times. And they were talking about the Big Bang. So they had all the cosmologists and the astronomers, all the scientists were talking about the Big Bang. Very interesting, the Big Bang. And then at some point in the article, there was like this amazing moment of truth that came into the New York Times. The New York Times quoted Robert Jastrow, if I remember correctly. And he said this. He said, when all the cosmologists and all the astronomers and everybody climbs up to the top of the mountain, the mountain being understanding the Big Bang, the, the top, the peak is the Big Bang. When they all climb up to the top of the mountain, what he said was, they find on top of the mountain the theologians waiting for them. And what do the theologians say? Well, those who are faithful to the Word say, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Do you see? The cosmologists can get really, really intense looking at the top of the mountain, but way, way, infinitely, infinitely beyond the top of that mountain is Jesus Christ. And he created the universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. 
And what did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to dwell in a woman's belly, in her womb, and to be given birth to in a humble state, and to live a humiliating life, and to learn discipline through the things he suffered, and then to have his disciples betray him, and then for us to show what we're made of. You want to know what you're made of? Look at the life of Christ. We showed what we were made of because we hounded him to death. And our religious leaders are the ones that led us. This is who you are. This is who your religious leaders are. But Jesus is not that way. Jesus is perfect. He's the Lamb of God. And he then came to this world that existed by the word of his power, and then he went to the cross and his blood poured out on the ground and he died to pay the penalty for our sin. That's the gospel. Now, if he is the one through whom the world was made, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. If that is what it took to clean you up, if that's what it took to clean you up, two things are true. Number one, you're unbelievably dirty. Because if it took God, God Almighty, to clean you up, you're you're a basket case. You're horrible. Now, I know you're horrible because I'm horrible. (laughs) But forget me. I'm just a witness to the word. You are horrible, and it's my privilege to tell you how awful you are. You are so awful that no vision of Jesus Christ as a great moral leader is ever going to help you. It's just going to make you feel hopeless, because there is no comparison between you and Jesus. When you get most evolved, most integrated, you're hopeless. Your mother was right, you're hopeless. My dad used to sit at the dinner table and say, yeah, Tim, when he grows up, he's going to be a trash man. (laughs) And let me tell you, as I was back then, a trash man would have been a tremendous gift to me that the universe would have given because of God's grace. You are hopeless. Your life is wicked. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. This is who you are. And if you're fully evolved and fully integrated, then you know it. And if you don't know this, the Holy Spirit has not opened your eyes. You're blind, you're deaf, and you're dumb. You're Tommy. Okay? There's no hope for you. But if the Holy Spirit has loved you, If God has set his affection on you, you know this because the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. That's a quote from Scripture. That's why the Holy Spirit comes, to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And you say, well, how is this hopeful? And I say, because until you're aware that you're blind, you don't turn on the lights. But the second you realize that you're hopeless, then... You flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. You flee there. And you will not let me and my sin get in your way. Don't. It is so disgusting that people that come to church say, well, the pastor's a hypocrite. Well, of course the pastor's a hypocrite. You ever read anything about the preachers in the Word of God? Ever read anything about Jonah? Anything about Paul? Anything about Peter? 
Pastors are sinners. It's God's pleasure to humiliate you by you having to feed from a mother who gets angry at you and loses her temper with her children. God could have given you a perfect mother. He gave you a mother who's a sinner. From the time you nursed at her breast, you learned the nature of depravity of mothers. Do you understand this? Not just dads are depraved. Mothers are depraved. You know, I have some daughters who are mothers and are depraved. And, oh, I love them. But I know they're depraved. And then you get a dad. He's depraved. He's like, we need Freud for this. Okay? And then you get a pastor. He's depraved. And then you get elders, and they're depraved. And every single one of them disciplines and prunes your idolatry so that the only one that you trust, the only one that you fly to, the only one that you cling to is Jesus Christ. He is righteous. He is the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. In the beginning was this Lamb of God. So the first thing you learn is you're hopeless. You're absolutely hopeless. People don't know what goes on in your mind and heart. He does. There's no place you can flee from him. You go down to the bottom of Cash's Ledge off Gloucester. And God sees you perfectly. There's no place you can hide from him. Your thoughts are open to him. That's a horrible thought, isn't it? But number two, how great his mercy and his grace are. You're awful. But if he came to this earth, God Almighty, the one who holds the universe together, who created it, the one through whom chaos has not blown us to smithereens. If he came to earth and gave himself to you, if his father sent him out of the father's love for you, it's unbelievable. You can come with confidence. It doesn't matter what your mind has done. It doesn't matter how evil your thoughts. It doesn't matter whether you've killed your unborn children three, four, five, six, seven times. It doesn't matter if you've paid your girlfriend to have an abortion. It doesn't matter if you've murdered, and you all have. All right? It, nothing matters if you're a sinner, because Jesus himself said, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. And so then you know you're qualified. This is the one place in life where you're not supposed to put on a happy face. You're supposed to grieve and mourn. And if you come to God... Under the cross of Jesus Christ, through his blood to wash you. If you come to him and you're filthy, you're a cesspool. Your mother was right. You are the one that Jesus was sent for. And all it requires, this is the gospel, all it requires is for you to plead with God to have mercy. And that's what repentance is. And then turn and you go to the cross. And from now on, you live for Jesus because he bought you with his own blood. And how could you not live for him? (laughs) How could you not 